Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're joining us this morning. Why don't you take a moment uh, to pray with me one more time. So God, we're here today. We are gathering for a reason. We really are here to hear from you. And so at this moment, we just pray a very simple prayer. God, don't let this just be another routine church service. Your people are desperate to hear your voice. I am desperate to hear you speak. Come, Lord, and speak into this church what you need to say to us at this moment. Begin, Lord, to do what you need to do. We ask this in in the name of Jesus, as we reflect on this amazing Advent season. Uh, amen. We're coming near the end of our series called A Normal Christian Life. It's been an exciting and I think a difficult series for all of us, we who gather here and the many of you watching and listening online. Because what we're starting to see is what a normal Christian life is and what may, many of us live maybe doesn't match up. And so my hope this morning for you, no matter where you are, or us gathered today, is that God would speak and encourage and, and pull us forward as he desires. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to James chapter 5. We're, again, nearing the end, and uh, we'll be hanging out there uh, today. Well, last week, James had really strong words. He confronted what he called abusive, faithless, rich people, both Christian and non-Christian. And as we discovered last week, the word or category rich describes anyone living basically in, in, at least in our community. Even the poorest among us compared to the world are quite wealthy. But now James changes his tone. He moves to challenge us and encourage both the abused poor and also anyone who's being faithful to Jesus in this life. Again, I love how honest the Bible is about reality. We all live in a fallen world full of trouble and pain, abuse and war and crime. And as we've just seen in the video, as we've prayed for the persecuted church, many more are challenged much more than us. Suffering is part of life, and it's one of those universally shared experiences we all hold as humans. The earth, our home, our existence is fallen and crushed and cursed, and it's wrought with pain. And James now, under the power of the Spirit of God, says this, that a normal Christian life can be and will be lived out within those experiences. Christianity does not allow escapism in any form. In terrible darkness, when our pain and experience are the same as others that do not know our God, the difference will be found, Scripture says, in the one that actually lives within us, the one that gives us hope and peace and abilities that, by the way, are unnatural. It is his presence and his moves that are truly echoes of what was lost in Eden and what really is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe God says this this to us this morning, church, The Lord, by his spirit, comes and says, I am about to realign us, to speak, to exhort, to encourage, and to rebuke. So the world will really know that there is hope. He says this in chapter 5, verse 7. 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Endure the faith, he says. Keep going. Live in the middle of trying people and trying circumstances. James is saying to us, crying out to us, keep going. The one that has saved you will make all things right, and he is coming back. We are commanded to be patient in delight of that sure hope, the eternal truth that we hold above all others, that the Lord really is coming. He says, look, O Christian, if you, listen to this, if you do not regularly reflect on Jesus' coming, you will not have the power you need or the patience you need to keep going in this faith without focusing on the risen, glorified, coming Jesus. It will lead to a powerless faith, an impotent faith, a weak faith, a faith that has no hope. How do you think brothers and sisters in lands that suffer for their faith, have their churches burned, are beaten for their faith, how do you think they keep going? Do they just muster it up in them? No. They reflect on the coming of Jesus because they know that is the only thing that will sustain them. Hear this. If we have no hope, then we will have no patience. And this will begin to create a toxic environment that slowly will ebb away at our hope and faith, which will tempt us in the end to leave our faith and to lose heart, walk away from the God that loved us first. God says, look to my son's coming. There and only there is the power to live a normal Christian life. Scripture is clear. The resurrection power of Jesus is given to this life and it is given fully in the future. Hear that little phrase that's used in church so much again and again. The Lord is coming. It means presence. It means arrival. It's the word advent. It's the idea of his coming. We just read the second advent reading about his first coming. Yet now James is pointing us even at this Christmas time to his second coming. And he says, look, Look for the Lord's coming. There is over 500 verses in Scripture connected to what we call the second advent. And who is coming, James says? Well, it's the Lord. And who is the Lord? Well, James made that clear in the very first verse. James, a servant of God, and of what? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus comes and ends time as we know it, that greatest of historical acts, Jesus will begin the judgment of all people, both believer and non-believer, Christian and non-Christian. Sitting with close friends while Jesus was on earth, he said these words about his return in Matthew 24. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power, and with great glory. Jesus' best friend, St. John, in persecuted times, living on the island of Patmos because he had been thrown out of his own home city, writes these words in Revelation 20 about this act. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, now standing before that throne, and the, and the books were open. And another book, it says, was open, which was the book of life. That is the book that records those who truly know God through the Lord Jesus. The dead were judged according, what, according to what they had done, recorded in those books. And then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each each person was judged according to what they had done in this life. Then death in Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in that book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
James says to us who are following Jesus, be patient and stand firm. Look for that coming, for all things will be made right. James then sort of changes and uses a parable from his culture. How to live in the in-between, between Jesus' hopeful return and life as we know it now. He says in verse 7, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. How patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Think about it, he says. See how the farmer waits. They are the very example of faithless, uh, faithfulness and patience and endurance. The ability to know that though nothing seems to be coming, it is actually underneath the ground, slowly coming to life, about to burst forth through the roughest soil, coming to bring one thing, Food, which is the very thing that every living creature needs. He calls it a valuable crop. Think about it. Food is life or death for us. It brings joy and community and fuel. It is an art form. It is a gift from the creator. But when there is no food, there is starvation. There is hopelessness. And it leads to death. James says to us this morning, the food is coming He says, think about the autumn and spring rains. In his time, in Israel, just before the planting season, there would be first rain in October, and just before the harvest, there would be a second one in March or April. I think it's interesting there's two rains because there is two advents, and again, they bookend our whole faith. He says, you too, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. He says, you And you, and you, and you, and many of you watching or listening, you who struggle with doubt, you that suffer, you that wonder, you that are strong in the faith, and you that are weak in the faith, you that are new in the faith, God says to anyone who claims the name of God's Son over their lives, be patient and stand firm. Strengthen your hearts and be steadfast. Be established and be confirmed. Stand firm in your faith and do not, and do not, and do not be overcome by sin, temptation, or sickness, or economic pressure, or a loveless marriage, or just the stuff of life. He says, this is not the end game. Wait patiently for the Lord's return. Never forget the context of James. He, he talked, to us this, talked about it last week. James was writing to abused Christians who were not being paid. They were being stolen from. And James says to them, remember, those who abuse you may have the upper hand for a temporary moment, and they, they might even be Christians themselves. But in the end, they will face the one that is coming, and they will give an account, and all things will be made right. And so you who are marked with the cross of Christ, you that have chosen to join the millions that have or do follow Jesus in the midst of trial and temptation, like the farmer who waits for an extended period, we Christians must wait also. Is this not how James started his whole book? His upside-down view of life, his countercultural worldview, his description of a normal Christian life? I mean, James 1, 2, it read like this. We preached on it weeks ago. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. He says, when you are being beat up, when life is awful, this, he says, is an occasion for joy. And he commands joy. Joy is not happy. It's not pleasure. Joy is an activity. How crazy, how countercultural. Joy as we face the torrent of trial. 
He says, have joy when you face trials of many kinds. He says, there are all sorts of situations and adversities inside and outside we're going to face. Social, economic, physical, uh, sin, the demonic, losing a job, war, sickness, family breakdown, unmet expectations, our rank among us, persecution for faith, midlife crisis. You can just fill in the blank from your own life. But again, I love the Word of God because it does not gloss over our pain, nor does it invent a superhuman Christian, but says, look, in honesty, in the pain and the reality of a fallen world, marred by our decisions in Eden, be joyful in trials. Why? He says this, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. James says, react with joy because this testing becomes an instrument that refines your faith and makes it more pure. He says, your faith will develop in perseverance, steadfastness, fortitude, heroic endurance, staying power. See, as I preached months ago, and let me do it again at this critical moment in our church's history, we cry out as Christians, I want to know you, God. I really want to be a Jesus follower. Do whatever you need to do in me. Revive this church. I want a deep faith. And God says, yes. But that yes, much of the time, says testing will come and your roots will grow deep. But it's right here. It's right here that so many people leave the local church and they they blame God and they blame us and they blame others or they blame themselves and they miss that that crisis was the very place of deepening where the God that loves them and the God that they love could have been bonded together in a way they have never known. God uses our fallenness and God uses the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our families and the brokenness of our stuff to produce a good crop. He said in the first chapter in verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Not only does it lead to a strong and rooted and mature faith, but we will be complete, James says, perfect. We are being pulled and reminded that in the end there is a return, which is our hope and our foundation. It is the cue for every Christian who is suffering in any way. Our faith becomes deeper and stronger and more certain through the fires of life with the hope and the view that Jesus really is coming back. Living in the tension of the now, not yet, I love what Richard Foster wrote years ago. For the Christian, heaven is only, is not, is not the goal, it's only the destination. The goal is that Christ would be formed in us now. Back to chapter 5, you too, he says, be patient and stand firm in the Lord's, for the Lord's coming is near. The Christians in James' time fully believed that Jesus could return at, at, at any moment, though they did not believe he had to. The point to every generation of Jesus' followers is this. Your troubles are very temporary compared to what is coming. That does not diminish them, but you must look at them at the light in the light of eternity. So in the middle of waiting and suffering at the hands of unjust people or just living in a messed up world and dealing with our own sin, James suddenly puts his pastor hat on and understands the danger that we're about to encounter. He says, don't turn on each other in the meantime. Verse 9 says, do not grumble against each other, brothers and sisters, or you also will be judged. 
As the pressure mounts, we all know this, we can actually turn against each other as Christians, as close friends, as as family members. James says we cannot lose patience with our circumstances, with other people, with God. For if we do, we end up sinning against the one who first loved us, and then we we will end up sinning against those we're called to love, which is ourselves and our neighbors. James says don't grumble, don't sigh and groan. See, James is concerned about unity, about purity, about relationships. It is chapter 3 and 4 all over again. Do not let jealousy and envy and malice, slander and defamation, do not let bitter, resentful spirits manifest itself among you and your relationships with each other. Why? And this is directed to followers of Jesus. Why? Because you will be judged for it. This should be one of the most powerful motives for holiness. One preached, this is a warning to examine one's behavior so that when the one whose footsteps are nearing finally knocks on the door, we will be prepared to open that door. The coming Lord is also the judge of us as Christians. Paul wrote this years ago too. It's not about salvation, he wrote, but it is, it is about an evaluation of our life. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, If a person builds his foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because on that day it will be brought to light. It will be revealed with fire, and that fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what they, do, what they have built survives, they will receive a reward. But if it is burnt up, they will suffer loss. They will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This is directed to us as followers. Everything we do will be tested. And only the things we've done with pure motive to the living God, those will be accepted. Then he says to followers of Jesus, to those who name his name, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door. Like I said last week, we've been in the last days since Jesus' birth. Jesus said it. The last days are here. He said it to Peter. Forget reading all the books about the last days are coming. We've been in them for 2,000 years. And James says in that apocalyptic understanding, the judge church is at the door right now. It is imminent. The Lord Jesus is about to enter the judgment hall. Are you ready? Well, after that startling reminder, he turns back and encourages and looks at holy history like an oral Ebenezer looking back at those who came before us that knew God and and made it through the serious and the terrible and, by the way, the overwhelming. Those that have ridden out the terrible tides of doubt, sorrow, disaster, and still held on in the end. Those that came with a more deep and more mature and more weathered faith. Their lives, James says, uh, were, well, basically a litany of rejection and abuse that they suffered for just obeying God. Yet they have become the great cloud of witnesses calling us on and showing us that with the power of God, we can really have a genuine shining faith in a really messed up, dangerous world. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example and patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Their suffering, he says, look, was a fact. Just read the Old Testament. For all these people that are preaching right now in the West, oh, just meet Jesus and health and wealth and He says, look at the Old Testament. The most faithful among us suffered the most. Yet James says, the suffering, though a fact, it was the manner that they lived and walked with God that shows us what we're called to do. Listen to these thoughts. God's blessing does not come to people who do great things. 
God's blessing comes to people who endure. As you know, one wrote, or James wrote, we considered blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance, he says, right? And saw what the Lord finally brought about. I read these thoughts about Job this week. Job endured unimaginable and unexplained suffering. The fiercest attacks of Satan, the loss of his children, his wealth, his health, his reputation, and oh, by the way, worst of all, even his sense of God's presence. Yet through all of this, Job did not sin against God. And he said these words, Though he slay me, I will still hope in him. The outcome of the purpose of the Lord's dealing with Job provides hope for anyone who is patiently suffering for God. There are four important divine reasons why Job suffered. To test his faith, to prove it was really genuine. To thwart Satan's attempt to destroy the faith. To strengthen Job's faith and enable him to see the God he loved more clearly. I love that James picked Job because it shows us what it really means to have biblical patience. See, so many church circles teach or think that if I'm to really trust God, I, I can't have real questions and I'm not allowed to question. I just need to shut up and, and get in line and, and deal with it. They just need to get some faith and pull up the bootstraps. No, that teaching, I have no clue where it's come from, either from hell or our own invention. All of Scripture shows us the opposite. From David to Job to Jesus in Gethsemane, he says real patience comes from real struggle. Job yells at God. He struggles with God. He questions God. He wonders and he, he says, God, why have you done this? He shows us that real biblical relationship with God involves real, honest dialogue. It was William Barclay that wrote, Job is no groveling, passive, unquestioning, submissive man. Job struggled and questioned, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. He cries out about his innocence and demands from God. I love that. He demands from God to be heard and to find out the reason why he has had such a reversal of fortune and suffering. At the end of the book, of course, we know that God is unbelievably compassionate and merciful. It's what James says, see what the Lord finally brought about. God restored Job's family and his fortune much larger. Is this saying that we're all going to be rich and, and healed in this life? Well, some yes and most no. We are reminded that we are called to live a faithful, patient, enduring Christian life, and God is going to make all things right. The start of that was the resurrection of Jesus, and our hope is found in his coming return. Well, as he ends this seemingly impossible call, he does it with the character of God. He says, the Lord is compassionate. He's full of mercy. The Lord is compassionate and full of mercy. See, if our God is not that, then we should all just leave, because he's probably the devil or something else worse. But James reminds us that as we struggle in such a difficult place, he says our God is compassionate and full of mercy. So many of us this morning have come really seeking today and wondering, what, Lord, are you going to say to us? Well, the phrase I couldn't get out of my mind this whole week was that one little phrase, rarely preached anymore, rarely talked about, rarely thought about. The judge is standing at the door. You that join us week after week, online or here, that are seekers, or maybe you're not seekers, maybe you've been dragged here, here's the question for you. Listen, please, carefully. 
Are you really ready to face God? Do you live like the one that knows everything you've ever thought and done and wondered about? The one that's been with you your whole life is about to meet you, and since he is perfect, he will judge you? Yet in love, God has delayed his coming so you can meet him, not as judge, but as Savior and Lord. I mean, hear the word of God again, seeker. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He comes to offer the one thing you long for and try to fill with everything but him. He comes to give you freedom from sin, death, and the demonic, and replace it with life and purpose and hope and freedom. Again, as I preached a few weeks ago, we see the path one must journey on to really meet God in a personal way, to move from observational or intellectual to relational. God speaks to the many of you who, again, still call yourself only spiritual. You define what you think it's all about. Or you who belong to another actual religion. Or to you that have no faith at all. Or to you who carry the title Christian. But you're not really a Christian. You know you're not a Christian. You do it because of inheritance or you do it because you do it. But you've never committed yourself to Jesus in the deepest of ways. God at this moment on holy ground says, come. I want to know you. This is how you get life, salvation, hope, purpose. This is how you become a fully alive human. You must come to your senses. You must cry out the ancient words of the church. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on me personally. Turn to Jesus and cry, listen, I am a sinner. I'm prideful. I've lived like you do not exist, or I've made you what I wanted you to be. I believe the lie that I could live without you and believe the lie that by being good or spiritual, somehow I'm just going to make it. I submit, I ask you to be Savior and Lord. I believe Jesus died and rose again and can deal with my rebellion and sin. And if you do that, listen, if you do that, you will have patience and hope in this life to live through the trauma of life. And when Jesus comes back, you will meet him as friend and Savior and Lord. You will not meet him as enemy, stranger, or judge in the eternal sense. What will you do? Will you run to him or run from him? Will you accept his embrace or will you push him away? The choice, expected or unexpected, comes to you at this very moment. Life will not go on forever. We all will face the judge. But that judge is merciful and compassionate and gives you a chance. Again, I'm going to keep doing this because I feel compelled to do this. And if you're a Christian here, just start praying. If you are that person where you have lived your whole life in that other direction. Again, just cry out this prayer quietly, and the rest of you can just start praying right now. God, that's me. That is me to a T. I have ignored you, or I've made you what I want, and I just, I'm done. Jesus, come now and get me. I, I turn from sin and, and that whole life without you, and I'd ask you to do one thing. Apply what you did on the cross to me right now. I ask you right now to be friend and Savior and Lord. I renounce being your enemy or a stranger, and I want to meet you as friend and as Savior, not as judge. Come do a new work in me I have never had. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed that, tell someone because your life is about to be reoriented. Yet, I think we all know as we gather here this morning, that James is written primarily to the many of us who have already prayed that prayer. 
As we truly seek God, I believe two strong themes emerge, not just from the text, please hear me, I mean for our church right now. Two items that heaven is trying to say for this time, in this day for our community. Two things that if they really took place, not in a few of us anymore, but across the community, our church would look different, our families would begin to look different, our neighborhoods and our region most definitely would look different. These two items are this, ready? Unnatural hope which produces patience. Unnatural hope that produces patience in the most terrible of situations and repentance for a wasted life among God's people. Please hear this. This is so critical for us as a family. You Christians that suffer loss, you who question and you who struggle mentally, emotionally, financially, you that wonder what you've done to deserve this by others or by God, you that wonder just why, you that see gray on the best of days, God sings this over you. Be patient, my sons and daughters, until my son's coming. Here is the deepest challenge for you, and it matters not only for you. Please hear this. It matters for us, and it matters for the many that are lost. Are you willing to be in the place where as a Jesus follower and under his lordship, you pray, God, listen, for your glory, Grow in me that patience no matter what happens. Give me hope and give me a life and a view of life that I live under the idea that Jesus is coming back. Are you willing to ask God to move, here it is, in such power that you will be a different Christian than you are right now? A friend of mine always used to say to me and smile at me, John, don't pray for the seats that are empty. Pray for the seats that are filled, that they would be filled first. That is the heart of this question right now. Are you willing as a struggling, deeply distressed Christian to say, God, give me unnatural patience and hope? Can you pray, do this in me, God, a work that makes no sense so others around me, like family and friends and coworkers, will begin to truly ask and actually will be compelled to say to you, what really is with you? I mean, you should be bitter. You have every right to be angry about life. You should be, well, full of darkness. Actually, you should be dead inside. It goes back to that prayer. Some of you, only some of you had the courage to pray last week. Lord, do whatever you need to do to change me. For your glory, for my freedom, so the world can clearly see Jesus in me. Many of us thought that when we became Christians... It was going to be the most amazing ride. And it was going to be all fun and exciting. And it is. But at this moment, the Spirit of God is coming, hear me, to many of you, teenagers, adults, the aged among us, and is saying, are you willing to have such an authentic faith that in the worst of situations, in the worst of situations, you are willing to pray, give me unnatural hope in a coming I have not seen yet and a patience that does not make sense so the world can really know there is hope beyond this life. It is a sacrificial prayer. If you're there, pray this with me. And if you're not, don't. But again, for you who are praying, just pray over this, pray over the church. Pray this prayer, Lord, do whatever you need to to change me uh, for your glory, for, for my freedom, so the world can clearly see Jesus.
pray for hope I don't have yet, and patience I don't understand. But I know I can't invent this. This can't just be churchized in me. You've got to do it. Come get me, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, for all the people that have just prayed that genuinely, I pray right now too for a spirit of evangelism to come on them. That as people begin to see an unnatural work of your spirit, many will be attracted to the Lord Jesus and they will actually be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. There's one last thing I think we need to talk about. Crothers Creek, the judge is standing at the door. I mean, the judge really is standing at the door. Don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Are we as a church not more and more behind the scenes and publicly calling out, Lord Jesus, come in a unique way, do whatever you need to do in us first, in our families, in our communities? Are we not just finally saying we're so tired of doing church week after week? Uh, just, just come. But implied in this is complete surrender. Yet this cry will not take place until we see that Jesus is really coming among us and showing us his will. Without a clear vision of his coming return and the account we're all going to have to give Jesus, the lordship of Jesus in this church and the power of God will not be released among us. Many of us, if we're honest, do not live like Jesus is almost here. We do not believe Jesus is really watching how we live our life. We do not believe we're going to have to give an account, and we really don't think he's coming back. We believe it here, but we don't live it out there. God calls to us to repent, to turn from our grumbling and our jealousy and our slander, and living a life focused on us or on dark things or on things that just don't last. James' example here of grumbling is only one of the many things that, of course, plague a church. Only when we come to our senses and live daily like he really is coming back, then and only then will groups of us begin to really cry out, God, change me or I die. God, please change me because I cannot change myself. I've tried my whole Christian life. Only you can change me. Here it is. I am at the end of me. Only then, when we really truly believe the Lord Jesus is coming, and he is about to usher in what Scripture says. Only then will there be a joy and a hope and a lordship and the release of the Spirit of God. Because we will actually start saying, life is going to continue in the next chapter. Goes back to that prayer again that I cannot get beyond. So if you are the person who names the name of Christ, but you just don't live like it's real... Or maybe you half live like it's real. Pray the prayer if you have the ability or the courage. So pray it with me again. Here it is. Lord, do whatever you need to do in me. Anything you need to do, I'm done. Do anything you need to do in me. So the world can know Jesus is there. So you'll be glorified. And you know what? So I'll be free of this. God, please help me to live in this view. Come do a new work in my old Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band's going to lead us in some worship, I was listening to my iPod this week to a new album I downloaded from um, Casting Crowns. Great new album. And there was a song there that just struck me time and time again. Um, almost an anthem of what I think maybe God wants to do among us. And as I read it, and I sang it, and I thought about it, 
I thought, what a great prayer for us to end with today. And so I'm just going to pray this over our whole church, this 909 service, and then the 1111, the 606, and the many who join us. And I would ask you to, to really just hear these words and pray them sincerely and just prepare to respond in any way God asks you to. So hear these words as we pray. You can just bow your head again if you'd like. Lord, hear our prayer. Here it is. God, hear our cry. Lord, we pray. Our faces are down and our hands are raised. You called us out, but we've turned away. So with shipwrecked faith and idols rise, we do what's right in our own eyes. Our children now will pay the price. We need your light. Lord, shine your light. With all our hearts and all your strength, with all your strength, with all our minds, we're at your fate now. May your kingdom come and in our hearts and lives. Let your church arise. Please let your church arise. If we've ever needed you, Lord, it's now. Lord, it's now. We're desperate for your hand. We really are reaching out. We are reaching out. We have never, if we've ever needed you, Lord, it's now. Lord, it's now. We're desperate for your hand as a church. We're reaching out. We need you now. Here it is. Revive us now. We need you now. God, I pray for myself. Start with me. Start with my wife. Start with my family. But I ask for hope in this church that Jesus is coming back. I ask for patience in this church, the many that are suffering. I ask for repentance in this church that you can only bring because we are so blind. And I'm asking for the unusual presence of God among us because people are lost and we are meant to bring your kingdom into this world. So do whatever you need to do in us. Give us the vision of the coming Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.